Okay, so 500 witnesses, but that's still just one historical source, the Bible. Wrong. There are at least nine ancient sources, both inside and outside the Bible, confirming that disciples and others encountered Jesus after the crucifixion. But, but they were already followers of Jesus. Well, not all of them. Think of Saul of Tarsus. He originally was a persecutor of Christians. He hunted them down and killed them. Yet he died the Apostle Paul, proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. But, but let's not kid ourselves here. People die for lies all the time. 900 people died drinking poison Kool-Aid at Jonestown. True, and there are other examples like that throughout history, but here's the difference. People don't willingly drink poison for something that they know is a lie. Fair point. If the early church martyrs knew that the resurrection was a hoax, then why would they willingly die for it? Would you? Um, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier. You said that, uh, mm -hmm. that this was personal to you. Why is that? I lost my wife, Debbie, to cancer. I'm sorry about that. It was the worst thing that will ever happen to me. But in my time of loss, it, it made me confront my beliefs. And that is where I found my true comfort. Because I know that I'm going to see my wife again someday. And forgive me, but as a man who, who claims to value hard evidence, don't you find that that sort of um, hopeful thinking weakens your argument? Not one bit. The fact that I benefit from gravity isn't proof that it's real. Just as my dislike for mosquitoes isn't an argument against their existence. You see, what I, what I want and what I don't want has no impact on truth. That being said, if Christ's resurrection means that I get to be with Debbie again, I have no problem being happy about that. Sometimes truth reminds us of what's really important. I had to confront what I actually believed. The scene you just saw is from the movie The Case for Christ. The man with the mustache and the long hair is uh, Lee Strobel. And this is based on a true story. And Lee Strobel wrote for the Chicago Tribune. And he was out on a mission to disprove Christianity. And the man with the long hair and the beard was Dr. Eugene Habermas, the foremost scholar on the resurrection. And in that scene, as they were going back and forth, sometimes we can get lost on the arguments of, of the resurrection of Jesus, whether it's philosophically or theologically. But at the end of the day, what Dr. Habermas said was there was a moment in his life when his wife died of cancer that he had to confront what he actually believed. How many of you have had to come to that moment? You see, when we talk about Christianity, whether you follow Jesus or whether you're a skeptic or whether a seeker, at some point in your life, you'll have to confront what you actually believe, not just about Jesus, but confront your priorities and values. See, today we're in a series about miracles, and miracles of Jesus really confront what we believe, they confront our priorities. They confront our values. Because at the end of the day, it asks us this very important question, what do you really believe about Jesus? Our main point today is this, is our response to miracles 
reveal what we believe about Jesus. Our response to miracles reveal what we believe about Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be in verse 14 through 22. Uh, Whether you're live streaming or you're here with us today, you can take your physical Bible or your mobile devices and turn there. We're in the third week of a series on miracles in plain sight. This section of Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Matthew puts together a whole series of miracles. And this section's different because Matthew has a teaching section that helps us really see who Jesus is and ultimately how we will respond to him. So let's take a moment and let's look at this passage together. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's home, this was Peter, his disciple, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. If you have a pen or if you want to make a note, this is Isaiah 53, 4. And Isaiah says, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowds around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. As we consider this series about miracles, I think before we go any further, it's important to note what the writer of Matthew defines as miracles. Scholar N.T. Wright says this, for Matthew, there's no sharp line between the healing Jesus offered during his life and the healing of sin and death, which he offered through his own suffering. So what that means today is we have this idea of Jesus's miracles that in one category, if I had no arm and my arm grew and came back to life, that that's a physical miracle. And that's where many of our minds go. That if I'm lame, I can begin to walk again. Is that if I'm blind and I begin to see. But it's important as we read these passages and we engage this topic of miracles that we realize that the miracle of someone who is addicted to cocaine, addicted to pot, that them coming to know Jesus and their life being changed, someone that is dealing with bitterness and unforgiveness, someone that simply was just living for themselves and the gospel transforms their heart and their life from their own sin, that Jesus' death and resurrection, that there's no difference to the writer of Matthew. And we can see this because Jesus' rhythm throughout the Gospels is this, is Jesus comes in and he'll heal someone and he'll even say, your sins are forgiven. And you might wonder, why, why is that important? I don't know about you, but I've encountered a number of people that tell me this. If Jesus did this, fill in the blank, I would believe him. If Jesus gave me a million dollars today in a suitcase... I would believe in him. If Jesus would give me that promotion, if Jesus would give me that house, if Jesus would save my marriage, if Jesus would do this. 
The problem with that thinking is as you read the Gospels, and as especially as you read Matthew 8, 14 through 22, there's people that saw Jesus' physical miracles. They saw people come back to life. They saw people get healed of their fever. They saw demoniacs be exercised of their demons, and they still didn't follow Jesus. They still didn't believe in who he was. So when we think of miracles, we have to immediately grab the bigger definition of miracles. But at the heart of this passage is even more importantly the reason why Jesus did miracles, the reason why Jesus lived the way he did. In that quote from Isaiah 53, 4, it talks about him bearing our pain. It talks about him walking into the darkness. You see, Jesus is the savior of the whole person. As Tolkien said in Lord of the Rings, is that Jesus came to make the sad things untrue. And how did Jesus model and live this way? Well, Jesus gave up the riches of heaven. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as a rich person. But he gave up the riches of heaven. He worked a blue-collar job. He was on the outskirts of society. He walked into people's darkness. He experienced physical pain. He experienced emotional pain. He experienced everything that when we pray to him, he knows the darkness that we experience. So the writer of Matthew wants to make no problems and wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus came to make the sad things untrue. That Jesus came into a dark and broken world so that when we experience the dark and brokenness of this world, that we know that there's a savior that identifies with us. And it means this, as we think about miracles in our own lives today, it's not just the physical and it's not just the spiritual, but Jesus comes to save us from bitterness. Jesus comes to save us from unforgiveness. Jesus comes to save us from greed because on the other side of what Jesus does in our heart is the life that he created us to live. There's a woman by the name of Kate Bowler. She's a Duke Divinity professor. She experienced infertility in her life. And a few years after experiencing infertility, she had a baby boy. During this time, her job at Duke Divinity as a professor was to study the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel simply says this, is that in following Jesus, he will give you money, he will give you the things that you want. And as a church, we don't agree with that. And she did that, and she studied it because she wanted to understand what the prosperity gospel is all about. And she got a phone call, which no one would ever want to get this phone call. She got a phone call from a doctor that said, you have stage four cancer. And I want you to listen to what she says. She recently, in a TED Talk, said this. As in the case with many of us, It's a mindset, the prosperity gospel, that served me well. The gospel of success drove me to achieve, to dream big, to abandon fear. It was a mindset that served me well until it didn't, until I was confronted with something I couldn't manage my way out of, until I found myself saying into the phone, but I have a son, because it was all I could think to say. When we think about the miracles, when we see Jesus' life, 
It's in these moments that God calls us to engage. It's in these moments that Dr. Habermas said it himself, that we confront what we actually believe about Jesus. And in confronting what we believe, our response is key. You see, the miracles tell us abundantly about Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior, that it's through his death and resurrection that we receive life physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But our response to miracles don't just say something about Jesus. Our response to miracles says something about ourselves. And there's two ways and there's two ideas that our responding to miracles emerge from this passage. And the first is this. Miracles confront the grid of where we place our faith in our life. Miracles confront the grid of where we place our faith in life. You see, we have three individual stories in this passage. Three individuals that come to see Jesus. And the first one is Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was a consistent disciple of Jesus. We know about him throughout all the gospels. He's a main figure and a main character. And Jesus goes to his house in Capernaum. And he's in this house and his mother-in-law has a fever. And it's important to note that this is not the 21st century. A fever is deadly. In the first century, there wasn't hospitals, there wasn't necessarily medicine, and the life expectancy was very, very low. And so here's Jesus. And what's different about this miracle is, this, is that Peter's mother-in-law, there's nothing recorded that she says to Jesus, please heal me. Peter doesn't go on behalf of his mother-in-law. Jesus operates on his own, and he heals her. And the powerful response was this, is Peter's mother-in-law gets healed. And by her getting healed, what it says in Matthew 8, 15, is she immediately gets up and serves Jesus. This is no accidental detail. The writer of Matthew is making a very, very clear call to discipleship. A very, very clear call of what it looks like to follow Jesus that when we experience the miracle of life change, that when we experience the miracle of healing, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, the natural response is to serve Jesus. The natural response is our grid, wherever it was before, the priority, the value of our faith moves from everything else to Jesus. And we see that in contrast with the two men in Matthew 8, in Matthew 8, 18 to 22. You see, in this next scene where Jesus meets with these individuals, you have to imagine this. Jesus has, has a boat and he's going with his followers and they're about to go to the other side of the lake. Now, some of you, you own boats, so you know that a boat is unlike a car or a bicycle. I can't just jump in there. You have to make sure that the, that the sail is right, that the ropes are right, that the anchors are right. And so it's in this scene that these two individuals come to Jesus. And the first one, who's a teacher of the law or a scribe, comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you. And there's a miracle here. And the miracle is this, is Jesus sees inside this teacher's heart. And so even by starting, this this scribe, this teacher of the law, calls Jesus teacher. Now, for many of us, it's not a stretch to say Jesus is a great teacher, And we put him on the same line as Aristotle and Plato and many other great philosophers, but that's not the way Jesus explains himself in the Gospels. 
And Jesus hears teacher, and he responds to this teacher of the law, this spiritual person, and he says this. He says, I can't promise that you're going to have a place to lay your head if you follow me. I can't promise that you're going to have a house. I can't promise that you're going to have a home. Foxes have places to live. Birds have nests. But if you follow me, there's a risk. And Jesus' miracle, he sees inside this heart. Whether this scribe got caught up in the hype of seeing Jesus' miracles, whether this scribe got caught up in the fact that Jesus' teaching were bar none the best, but we see that Jesus immediately goes there and he says, following me, you're going to have to risk your comfort. You're going to have to risk maybe the way people perceive or look at you. And then right succinctly after that, well, well the boat is still going. Well, well, the disciples are still getting ready to go to the other side. A disciple a person that, as you read this text, if you were part of the first century, you would notice that, that they were pro-Jesus, that, that this disciple was with him. And this disciple walks up to him, walks up to Jesus and says this, I'll follow you, but I want to bury my father first. Now, for some of us reading this text, you know, we could have a various different of opinions, but I, I want us to be a little gracious here. Because it's not just about the money. It's not just about this disciple getting money from, from his father, but, but this disciple is kind of saying this, hey, I, I really want to settle this state. I really want to be there for my family. I really want to make them a priority. And I think it's important to note, too, that this disciple's not saying his father died yesterday. What this disciple is saying is, I have an undetermined amount of time until my father died. And when that's done, I'll follow you. And Jesus looks back at him and he says, follow me and let your family take care of what they need to take care of. See, what you notice with these two men that's very different than Peter's mother-in-law is these two men had a grid for where they placed their faith. Instead of responding to Jesus, we actually have no account in here. And Jesus goes right at the place where you could see that they struggled the most. The scribe, the teacher of the law, is standing there thinking that Jesus is going to meet some need and be comfort, that everything's going to go well, that Jesus is this nice add-on of self-help to his life. And then we see this, this disciple that's saying, I want to follow you, but, but my priority right now is to wait for my father to die. My priority right now is to settle the estate. My priority right now is the inheritance. What's the grid for where you place your faith? Where do you really trust? Who do you really trust? I think the natural question that comes from this passage saying this, is Jesus telling me to abandon my family and sell my house? Before we answer that, I think there's something really important in this passage that if you miss it, you'll miss what Jesus is trying to say. You see, when, when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew 8, 14 and 15, what ends up happening is we get this little detail that this miracle happened in Peter's home. You see, when Peter followed Jesus, he gave up his job. And all guesses is that he was a pretty successful fisherman. He gave up his job, but he didn't sell his house. Why is this important? Because Peter, with all of his failings, with all of his imperfections, had a different priority. He had a different grid for where he placed his faith. 
His house became a place where Jesus could rest. His house became a place for the disciples to be. Whereas these other two men that are engaging Jesus, you can see where their priorities are. You can see why Jesus was looking into their hearts and their lives. You know, this leads us to the question even about our own homes. Did you buy your house because it was your dream house so that you could go inside your man cave and watch movies without distractions from the kids? Did you buy it because it looked like it came out of an article from Chip and Joanna Gaines? Did you buy it because it revealed some sort of status? Or did you buy it with the intention of, I'm gonna open my home to strangers and people that don't know Jesus. And I hope that they experience grace. I hope that they experience life. I'm gonna buy this home because I pray that someday at the kitchen table, there's gonna be discussions with my kids that are, gonna, that are gonna be Holy Spirit infused and we're gonna talk about the Bible and hopefully it's gonna make an internal difference in their lives. You see, the question about whether Jesus is calling you to sell your house or abandon your family, it's not really about that. It's about where does Jesus rank in your priorities? Where does Jesus rank in your grid for faith? Do you have a kingdom perspective Are you seeing everything that you have out of a kingdom resourcing or is it only for you? Or is it to get this image or is it to be someone else? You know, in this series, you know, Rob has challenged all of us, our lead pastor, to to really talk about miracles in our own life. And last week, uh, Dr. Torrance Sparkman shared uh, some of his. I know that John Amayo and Sherwin Damdar are gonna be speaking. They'll share theirs. But I wanna share a miracle in my life. I was in college, and I was in Greek 1, which is a miracle in and of itself that I'm still here to talk about it. The professor's name was Wes Smith, and there was about nine of us in this classroom, and he looked at all of us, and he said, can you just share your name and where you're from and what your major is? And I said, my name's Peter Englert. I'm from Binghamton, New York, and I'm a pastoral ministry major. And he looked at me, and he said, my dad pastored Binghamton First Assembly. And that's the church I attended as a kid. Wes and I got to know each other, and so at one point I asked Wes, I said, Wes, how did you end up in Binghamton? You see, Wes was a high schooler, and his dad was a pastor. His dad's name was R.D. Smith. And he said that his dad was really worried about his son. R.D. was pastoring in New York City, Jamaica, New York, And he noticed that Wes was getting caught up in the wrong crowd. He was playing basketball and he was in high school and and already prayed and he just felt that God was moving him on. The church that he was pastoring was really successful. It was going well. And he decided to give the riches of New York City to go to the poorness and the bleakness of Binghamton, New York. And I'm the only one that can say that because I'm from there. So R.D. began pastoring First Assembly of God. And it was in a really small church, and it was growing, and God was doing big things. And at the time, there was a building that was open that's very similar in Rochester, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Arena. It was a place where boxing matches were, basketball games were, and it was open, and it was for sale. And R.D. prayed, and he said, I believe that God's calling us to buy that building. The rumors spread around Binghamton, 
They called it Smith's Folly. The newspapers picked it up. And they said, you'll never fill this building. You'll never, ever see all these people coming to know Jesus. But R.D. again prayed, and he said, I, I just, I believe that there's some kingdom worth, and I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, and I'm just going to do it. So the church bought that building. That building ended up growing with people that didn't know Jesus. And during that time, there was a middle schooler who got to know Wes's mom, Polly. Polly would go get her hair done in this neighborhood salon, and this junior higher would go in and say hi because it was part of the neighborhood. That little boy got to know Polly, got to know R.D., later got married in the 70s and started attending First Assembly of God. They had three kids, and their youngest is standing with you today. And when I think of that miracle, and I think of what R.D. did, making a decision to go from New York City to Binghamton, I think about what would have happened if R.D. had a different grid for life. And even sitting in that Greek class, realizing that, that I'm where I am today because of Wes Smith's father. It's a powerful message. It's a powerful miracle. And you might say this, well, Peter, that's a pastor, and they're professional ministers, and you know they come across decisions like that all the time. I'd, I'd argue with you. You have those decisions and those opportunities of where you put your grid for faith. There's some of you today that you're about to get a promotion, and it might pay 100,000 more dollars. It could pay millions and millions of dollars. It might ask you to move, but I would ask you this. What grid for where you place your faith? What's the grid is it about you looking good? Is it about the gospel of success or the gospel of dreaming big, which is what Kate Buller talked about? Or are there other things? Are you asking the question of what will it do to my family? What will it do to my family if I'm not available? You know, you might be even thinking about where to move and where to buy a house. Do you have a grid where you place your faith in Jesus and you say this, I'm gonna move to wherever Jesus asks me to move? Are you living with kingdom priorities? The truth is, is all of us experience that. All of us have to confront those questions. So the first point is this, is miracles cause us to confront the grid for where we place our faith. And secondly, miracles expose our greatest fear. Coming back to Matthew 8, 18 through 22, this is a significant teaching section in the book of Matthew and in this section on miracles. You see, the people that hung around Jesus, his crew, there was three main disciples that spent a lot of time with Jesus. It was John, James, and Peter. And then there was a group of 12 disciples that spent time. And then there's about 100 other followers who followed Jesus. They were the crowds as you read the gospel. And the interesting thing about the crowds is this, is the same crowds that saw Jesus do miracles, the same crowds that were singing Hosanna were the very same crowds that crucified Jesus. Because really what they were looking for, they weren't looking for a savior who would save them from their sin to make the sad things untrue. They were really looking for a savior to overthrow the Roman government. And that was their greatest fear. And then we come back to Matthew 8, 18 through 22, is that these two men that are engaging Jesus, they're engaging him and they're asking Jesus to, to basically, they want to follow him, but on their own terms. 
So the first man, the scribe, the teacher of the law, is that there's some fear of losing comfort. There's some fear of what would be lost, of the risk of not having a home. And the second man, this, this fear of perhaps we can say control or security. I need to take care of what I need to take care of, Jesus, before I come and follow you. So here's the deal. You may not struggle with those things that the crowds or, or the teacher of the law or the disciples struggle with. But if Jesus was to sit down with you, and if Jesus was to ask you and go to the exact place that you're scared of, what would it look like? What would it be? See, at some point in our life, when we experience miracles and when we see Jesus working, we have to confront our greatest fears. This past week, I was in Ocean City, New Jersey, America's uh, family resort. And it's a beautiful beach town, and we love it. We go every year with my wife and her family. And my little 16-month-old, Haley, we were hoping to teach her about how to get into the water. And she has this healthy fear of water. The healthy fear is this, like, I know that some of you, you have kids that, like, if you're not watching them, they, they would just go into the water fully clothed without any type of flotation devices. That's not Haley. But what I would do is each day I would pick Haley up and I'd walk her to the edge of where the waves come in and I'd go to put her down and I have never felt a 16-month-old grab my shirt as hard as she would and she'd go, no, 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 no. And as I'd go down, it would get louder and louder. (laughs) I think about that for our own lives. You know, Jesus talks about counting the cost. Jesus doesn't say, just throw caution to the wind and follow me, but Jesus says this, count the cost. But just like my daughter Haley, I think sometimes he says this, can you just put your foot in the water? Can you just, can you just do the thing that scares you? You see, because what we do with fear is we see everything that we're losing So if you read this passage and you say this, well, you know, risking losing my home, risking, you know, losing the inheritance and trying to help my family, that's a lot to lose. But what we don't understand is that Jesus has created us for a significant and meaningful life that at times that we'll have to go straight into the places that we're scared the most. There's a pastor out in Buffalo, his name's Jerry Gillis. He says it this way, is your yes on the table before Jesus asks the question? Is your yes on the table before Jesus asks the question? I think about that for us. You know what I find interesting is I talk with many of you You know, so we have everybody here. Some of you, you don't quite believe in Jesus, but you're here and you're trying to figure things out. And others of you, you've been following Jesus and you've made some steps of growth. And some of you, you've been following Jesus for 50 and 60 years. But I find it interesting that when I ask people, you know, what's the biggest area of growth in your life? People say, well, I want to go deeper into scripture and I want to pray more. I want you to hear me. I think that those two spiritual disciplines and practice are really, really important. But you know what? If you know more about the Bible and if you pray more and become more passive, then you're really not experiencing the life Jesus called you to live. 
Because at the end of praying and reading your Bible and understanding it better, usually God begins to call you to do things that you're scared of. It begins to confront the values that you have, confront the places where you have faith. You know what that looks like? It looks like the people that are going on a missions trip to Peru to give up a week of their vacation, a week of their time with their family, and they're saying this, I'm willing to go to the scary places. You know what that looks like? is after reading the Bible, after God changing your heart, you're saying this, I'm gonna give money to the church every single week because I realize that God owns it all. And maybe I don't have my priorities in the right space. Some of you, you serve in 10 or 12 different areas at church and God bless you for doing that. But maybe the biggest risk for you today is to say this, I'm gonna take the risk of serving and raising up another leader so that they can take my place because I'm not just caring about my own discipleship, but I'm caring about the discipleship and influence of people who are unengaged in here. It's scary. It's easier to take control. It's easy to take security. But if you never take those risks, if you never engage the areas that you're scared, you're missing out on what God really wants to do with your life. When was the last time you got out of your comfort zone to follow Jesus? When was the last time you confronted your fears and you did exactly what Jesus asked you to do? As Eugene Habermas said in the beginning video, I had to come to the place that I confronted what I believe. Our main point this morning was this, is that our response to miracles reveal what we believe about Jesus. What's the grid of the place that you have your faith in your life? Is it success? Is it dreams? Or is it really on Jesus? Do you have a kingdom vision for your life? And what are you really scared of? When was the last time that Jesus called you to do something so scary that you needed him to walk with you? I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this message. If you could bow your heads in prayer, there's going to be music that plays. I just want you to have this moment with Jesus and pray. And you can just use those two questions. Number one, where, where do I really place my faith? What's my grid of where I place my faith? Is it Jesus or is it something or someone else? Maybe you need to confess that to him. And maybe the question is, is this, what are you really scared of? How are you responding to the miracles that Jesus is doing in plain sight in front of you? Why don't you take a moment to pray while the music begins to play?